are with us. We like to open up the Bible. We like to read from it. We like to gain our understanding from it. We believe God's Word does what it says it does and offers us a light for our path, shows us the way of faith and enables us to know God himself who has revealed himself wonderfully in his never failing word. Uh, If you're new to church, there should be a a Bible in front of you in the pew. Uh, If there isn't one there, steal it from the person next to you. If they are good Christians, they will give you a shot of it. Those pew Bibles, uh, the page number is 1198 if you want to turn there. We're reading from the book of Titus chapter 2. And let me just lead us in prayer so that we can ask God for help in understanding his word. Lord, you say, in answer to our question, how can we keep our way pure? You say, by living according to your word. This word, which shows us indeed where we fall short of your glorious standard, but Your word which tells us wonderfully from cover to cover of the great story of your divine rescue for people who could not save themselves. We thank you that on every page we see Jesus and we hear him teach. And indeed we pray that you would give us eyes to behold him today and to know that how we may live our lives in his likeness. Lord, teach us and train us today by your Holy Spirit we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are walking through uh, uh, the book of Titus just now, and we come to chapter 2, and I'd like to read just from verse 1. I'm actually going to read beyond just a... a, We're dealing with a couple of texts today um, relating to men in this passage, but I want to read from verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. God's Word says... You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because... They have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. To try to please them, not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own 
eager to do what is good. Amen. This is God's word to us. Well, I want to start today just by picking up on a little illustration that, that uh, Paul used, that is Pastor Paul, not the Apostle Paul, uh, last week uh, in our Titus series. Um, he was explaining the importance of picture frames, as I hope you will see even from the image on screen. In any gallery or in any home, a good frame is supposed to accent the picture that it contains and essentially to draw the gaze of the onlooker into the picture, to appreciate indeed what's displayed. And this, in a sense, is the calling of the church. We are the frame, Christ is the picture, he is the masterpiece, he is the amazingly, infinitely glorious son of God, And has called the church, true believers, everywhere, irrespective of age, irrespective of gender, intellect, whatever, to draw the gaze of onlookers to Jesus Christ. And in a sense, as they gaze, to commentate, to explain to the onlooker with gospel words what they see when they truly gaze upon the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. The calling of every Christian essentially is then caught up in this, making much of Jesus Christ. Making much of Christ. The big question that we have is how? How do we draw the gaze of the onlooker to Jesus Christ? Well, Last week we explored one answer to that and one of those answers is by in churches appointing godly pastors, godly elders who are entrusted to teach sound doctrine. And remember the word, the Greek word for sound as we thought through last week was the word uh, for healthy and whole. It's the word from which we get uh, our English word hygiene. So we need people who are going to truly, men who are going to teach Uh, this clear, pure doctrine so that it's whole and healthy. And in that way, the true gospel, the teaching about God our Savior, which is revealed to us by his Spirit, is then faithfully preserved and faithfully proclaimed with nothing added, nothing taken away. And what we saw was some of the the health and the vitality of a church is, is tied up in this. It's maintained, the health and the vitality of our church is maintained by a good, strong leadership who defend the truth and live out the truth in godliness. And I say all of that as a preamble to to lead you into remembering as well that we've already seen in this book of Titus what can happen in churches where that doesn't happen. Even in chapter 1, if you look back in verse 11, we saw that there are false teachers who are said to be ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Okay, their teaching is infectious. It's not whole. They've either added something they're not supposed to add or they've taken away something they're not supposed to take away. And as we see, it's having a detrimental effect on people. Families in the churches, households are being ruined. And it's no surprise then to see the reputation of Christ then being ruined. 
these are the kind of occasions where the frame, if you like, does not draw the onlooker to gaze upon the beauty and majesty of Christ and so to see him for who he is, but instead repels. That's a problem. It's no surprise then to see Paul in chapter 2 turning his attention to the rebuilding of these households, these households that have been broken down, as if to say, let's get this straight, here's what true godliness looks like in the lives of older men and older women and young men and young women. Everyone in the church. And I love the, I love the practicality of chapter 2. Chapter 1 has very much been about, okay, elders, you need to be godly. Here's what happens if you're not godly. It all just goes to pot. But just in case folks in church were thinking, okay, the elders need to be godly, that's fine, as long as they're doing okay, we're okay. No, the reputation of Christ is dependent upon the entire church expressing this same godliness and that's really what we're turning to look at in these uh, next couple of weeks to look at what godliness looks like for older men for younger men and next week for older women and indeed younger women and this is a really important thing for us to think through this is why it's important it's a terrible thing for Christians to live in such a way that we do indeed repel the gaze of the unbeliever rather than draw the gaze of the believer. It is intolerable that we would adorn Christ with some kind of monstrous frame that does not commend him to the world. And let's face it, our ungodliness is loss. It brings ruin, just as we saw with the false teachers. And I think that's what we see even in chapter 2, verses 5, 8, and 10 where our ungodliness leads to the word of God being reviled, as we see in verse 5. The opponents of God deriding, as we see in verse 8. And the teaching of God in verse 10 becoming unattractive. So godliness, what I want us to understand is godliness. Godliness in all in the church, all true believers, godliness brings great gain for the gospel. Therefore, among all, not just leaders, among all in the churches, it must be pursued by God's grace and with the Spirit's help by every single believer. So we are going to start with the older men and the younger men today. As I have said, godly older men is my first point. Godly older men are, number one, discerning. Discerning. Look what. Verse 2 says, teach the older men to be temperate. Temperate. The word used in Greek here refers to being somewhat sober-minded. And it's used in various passages in the Bible which refer to the folly of drunkenness. And what Paul has in mind here for us is that older brothers in their families and in their churches need to be clear in their thinking. Not agitated. Not put off by something. We we had a little illustration of this when Rodney's mic started to go a little bit wonky a few seconds ago. Did you see the smoothness with which he just went, la da 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 da. Now that is a perfect illustration of the kind of sober mindedness. Because a man with a temper would have said, what? What's going on with my microphone? And take it out and start hitting it and banging it off things. No, sober-mindedness and temperateness means that you're just, you've just got a little bit of discernment. 
You've experienced things in your life. You know what's going on. You know not to lose the head. You're a level-headed person. There is a composure about you. You're not agitated by circumstance. Indeed, you are clear in your thinking. Drawing on years and years of Bible teaching, I pray, and certainly years and years and years of, of life experience, which no doubt contains highs and lows, gains and losses, successes and mistakes and as a result you grow in discernment it's necessary it's extremely important because the kind of behavior displayed by I suppose the typical non-temperate man Victor Meldrew demonstrates the unattractiveness we laugh at that but seriously if your parents behaved like that it would be embarrassing Older men need to be discerning, temperate in that sense, sober-minded, level-headed. Secondly, dignified. Worthy of respect, in other words. Older brothers, you're called to live out godliness by having something of a gravitas about your life. A humble godliness which characterizes your life and wins the honor and respect of others. The Greek word has its root here, uh, uh, and is expressed through our English word solemn. Now that doesn't mean you walk around being unhappy all day. Uh, it's not about being grumpy uh, in your senior years. It's about just being dignified. A seriousness about yourself. And that, of course, is to be encouraged. The third thing, then, discipline. Disciplined. Older brothers in the Lord are to be self-controlled, as you see in verse 2 there. They're to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, disciplined. The word that's used here is the Greek word sophronas. It's made up of two Greek words joined together. It's the word for saved and the word for mind. So in other words, older brothers, for you to conduct yourselves in a, in a godly way, and in a disciplined, self-controlled way means that you are to act in every circumstance as one who has a saved mind. So in other words, you don't despair as indeed some do who are not saved, who do not rest and rely upon the rock that is Jesus Christ in every circumstance. In those kind of instances, we are when the winds and the waves of life buffet against people. There is a tendency to panic. There is a grasping for many different aspects of, of life, different kind of, I, I suppose, if you like, life rafts that are thrown out. People grab onto them. Some have got massive punctures in them. There is only one that is stable. There is only one indeed that will support you and, and, uh, and, and hold you. And that is Jesus Christ. We are to act and react in life, older brothers, like we have a saved mind. But not only are we to be discerning and dignified and disciplined, older brothers are to be sound. Sound in faith, first of all. See again in verse 2, look with me, see that it's here. Sound in faith, in love and in endurance. What you have here is just this wonderful divine triad. Three things that Paul always, 
always, always places together. He does it at the start of the book of Thessalonians. He thanks the Christians. Uh, he thanks the Christians there for the, thanks God for the Christians there for the evidence of the fact that they are Christians. How does he know that? Well, they have a, a functioning faith, a laboring love, and a hope that perseveres even through difficulty. And these are the things that Paul says, okay, these are the marks of true Christian faith. If you have faith, hope, and love. And these are the marks of true and genuine believers, the marks of godliness, particularly in older men. And when we, when we see Paul call for them to be healthy and sound in their faith, we understand that the church needs older men who make much of Christ by demonstrating that their trust in him and his promises is strong. That they are not put off necessarily by obstacles, but indeed are prayerful and are confident in the Lord. And what we see even here is that the witness of the church is enhanced by a functioning faith in our older brothers. So the encouragement in all of this is, older brothers, is for your attitude towards God to be such that everyone can see the health and the soundness and the wholeness and the vigor of your faith. And indeed, secondly, in your love, it's actually number five, but it's second in this little triad here. In your relationship with God and in your relationship with your neighbor, let everyone see the depth of your love. Be compelled towards godliness by the very love that Christ has shown you and by the love, the very love, which Christ has places, placed in your heart and through you acting as an instrument just longs to share that love with others. So love, love like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love patiently. That's a mark of godliness, isn't it? Love kindly. Love gently and warmly and seriously. And older brothers in this, grow in your godliness and continue growing in your love for the Lord. Let not that love grow cold for that. That is a danger. And then sixthly, hope. Be sound in your hope. Sound in hope and steadfastness. Let everyone see your security in, in the Lord. The NIV, of course, has steadfastness in there. It has to do with uh, endurance, sorry. Uh, the ESV mentions steadfastness. has to do with perseverance, doesn't it? It literally means to under-abide. That is, to stand, to remain steadfast in Christ under trials. And this is important for our older brothers to understand, of course, because the Christian life is... For, for no one an easy ride it's never promised to be that and older brothers are the kind of people who are perfectly able to tell us exactly what it's like and to share with us some of their stories we need perseverance perhaps particularly we need perseverance in older years maybe as you continue to see struggles with sin in your own life Maybe as you see the impact of some particular situation in the world or even in your own family. We need to understand the need for perseverance. The church needs godly older men who will persevere with great hope and great confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ. Understanding that, that they're in this for the long haul. 
And that's not necessarily a bad analogy for the Christian life, is it? I mean, as I say, it is not an easy ride. It's, it's like a long-haul flight with turbulence. We understand this. It's not a bad example in a sense. You know what long-haul flights are like. It's not exactly comfortable. You've got no leg room. The guy on your left ate way too much garlic before he got on the plane. The lady on your right has fallen asleep on the shoulder again. And the child in the seat behind you has been kicking your seat for the last 300 miles. Okay, It's not... Long-haul flights are not an easy ride. But what is, it, what is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you going on these long-haul flights? Thoughts of your destination. Isn't it? Same with the Christian life. Persevere in godliness, brothers, in the Lord. In endurance with thoughts of your destination. And stand strong. And walk in faith and in love. And in all these matters, don't even think about grabbing a parachute. Persevere in him and look forward to that day when you will be with him, seeing him face to face, singing his praise forever. Older brothers, with respect, may I encourage you in all of these things to press on. And may I, with respect, discourage you from adopting a scrap heap mentality. Let me explain that. I don't want any of the older brothers here to think at all that because you're retired from your work that you necessarily can retire from participation in the body of Christ, in the church. I think, we're, I think we need to encourage our older brothers to finish well. And I'm so glad, even as I look out and getting to know a few of you already, some of you brothers who are finishing well. Never think that you're too old to participate in the life of the church. And I'm not talking here about attending even senior citizens meetings. I'm talking about the possibility of playing an essential part, particularly in the discipleship and training of younger men in the faith. It is absolutely key to our progress. It's key to our life of godliness together as a church. As you consider the prospect of training younger men just doing little bible studies with them nothing spectacular read the bible with them share of some of your experiences let them see your heart let them see the way you have cared for your family let them see the way you have persevered through some of the saddest moments of your life through bereavements through trials through difficulty and tribulation let them see what matters let them see your faith hope and love let them see your that you're disciplined. Let them see that you are dignified. Let them see, indeed, what was the other point? Disciplined and self-controlled in these matters. Imagine the possibilities in the area of discipleship, the enriching possibilities for older believers in the congregation who sadly feel that, that they're of no longer of particular value in the church. I don't believe that for a second. I hope that's not a mentality in the life of the church. There is a potential for great work and great ministry and discipleship. And I want to encourage the older brothers here to see the possibilities of the multiplication of godly men with gospel words framing Christ's magnificence to the glory of God. Isn't that what we're all about? Surely. And by the way, I know I'm going to get to the women next week. That should be interesting. <laughs> For me, I mean. 
But some of these characteristics, you know, even with the characteristics of eldership that we were looking at in the last couple of weeks, there's nothing particularly razzmatazz in a Christian sense about these characteristics. I think that's the point. Even in Timothy and Titus, when you look at the qualifications of elders, of the 19 things that are offered in terms of the qualifications, 18 have to do with character, one has to do with ability, that is to teach. You see how these things should all be fundamentally embedded into our Christian character, and in that we can press on and frame Christ's magnificence beautifully. We need to be encouraging one another in these matters. Godly older men be discerning, dignified, disciplined, sound in faith, love and hope. I commend that to you. Godly young men. Godly young men. Well, look with me in verse 6. Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Is that it? Just one? It's not fair. The older guys get six. The young guys get one. Surely there's an imbalance. It should be the other way around. But when you think of it, it's particularly apt for young men. All-encompassing and extremely important. Young men, do you need to control your temper? Do you need to control your lusts? Do you need to get a handle on your ambition? Do you need to control your time better? Do you need to control your appetites? There are many, many desires young men in Christ pursue, indeed to the detriment of their souls and to the detriment of the witness of the church and to the detriment of the reputation of Christ through that local church. And the call for young men, of course, is to be rooted and established in the faith, pursuing good accountability with one another, with even older brothers in the faith, as I've been mentioning. We were talking about that at our men's breakfast only a few weeks ago, actually. I'd love to see more and more folks in one-to-one discipling relationships. Maybe that's something to do after the service, look for someone to do that with. But we need to be rooted and established in the word, in the church, Seeking accountability, guarded against being led astray, guarded against the evil promptings of the evil one, which just come at you. Thick and fast. The the call for us to recognize the very heart of our self-control, at the heart of our self-control, young brothers, is submission to Christ. That's at the heart of self-control. It is submission to Christ. I mentioned earlier that the word for self-controlled for the older brothers means to act like one who has a saved mind. It's actually the same word that's used in the passage in Mark 5. You remember when Jesus has calmed the storm they're going over the lake to the, the, to the area of the Gerizines and there this man called the Gerizine demoniac, which is a terrible name to give him. But he is, he is running around in the tombs. He is naked. He is out of his mind. He breaks chains. He is uncontrolled by himself, uncontrolled by anyone. And Jesus comes and speaking a word of peace, heals that man. And then we see of people coming from the town to see the man clothed, and 
Sophranos in his right mind, in having a saved mind sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. A beautiful, beautiful picture. And that is a picture of what Paul desires for young men. Dignified, clothed in your right mind, having a saved mind sitting at the feet of Christ and being submissive to him, doing what he says. For his words are life. His words are life, not death. His words are life. To be self-controlled in your right mind, not pursuing the things of the world, pursuing Christ. That's what he calls for young men in their self-control. And then, of course, at the heart of our self-control is making no provision for the flesh. Making no provision for the flesh. If you are truly his, young brother, you have, as Galatians 5.16 says, you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You've crucified the sinful nature. And if you can truly say with Paul in Galatians 2, I have, crucif- I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live the life I live by faith in the body I live. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me and gave himself for me. We're called to recognize the great truth that we have crucified that sinful life and in the days ahead, as we are Christians, to make no provision for that flesh. Now, here's the thing. Okay, all of us have been created in God's image, okay, male or female, no doubt about that. And the Bible says that what happened, this was wonderfully illustrated to us earlier on in one of the testimonies. The Bible tells us that we are, in a sense, slaves to our sinful nature. We're, we're kind of shackled to it, okay? And what happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus is that those chains are broken. That you no longer live as one enslaved to sin but that you live as one who has, in the right sense of the word, enslaved to Christ. You are, you are no longer in sin, you are in Christ. Okay, it's one of Paul's favorite phrases. But what happens is that you do not immediately lose all sinfulness straight away. That's not the case. You would know that if you have become a Christian. All the brothers and sisters said, Amen, Absolutely. But what happens is this sinful nature still exists and will still probe and still tempt and still throw desires into your path as you live out this Christian life. Not until we see Christ face to face in the new heaven and new earth will we know that true sinless perfection. But what happens in the meantime is that we are constantly in battle with this sinful nature. That we long to live for and serve Jesus Christ alone. But sometimes we are, we are tempted by our sinful nature. Now, what Paul is talking about in Romans when he says, make no provision for the flesh, is that sometimes we can be particularly indisciplined, particularly for young men here, in feeding the flesh. It's almost saying, okay, sinful nature, come on down, have a seat. There's a Christmas turkey. Here is a whole host of food before you, in a sense, and we stuff it full and it grows and grows. And it can be pretty overwhelming. But what we are supposed to do by making no provision for the flesh, by being self-controlled and by having that primary soul affection for Jesus Christ, is that you starve it. It does not grow. 
It is subdued. Still there. Reminding us constantly of our need for daily dependence on Christ. But it's subdued. We make no provision for it. That's the call for young men to be self-controlled. So young men, in, in, in what areas of your life are you feeding the flesh instead of starving the flesh? What does your internet activity tell you in response to that question? What does the playlist on your iPod tell you in answer to that question? What about your TV habits, your thoughts, your, your passions, your conduct and your relationships with parents, your conduct and your relationships, young men, with young women? What does that tell you about your appetite? Are you, are you starving the flesh or are you feeding the flesh? One of the most common responses I've heard in relation to this call to self-control from young men is, hey, life is for living. I can live on the edge for a little while. Repentance can come later after I've enjoyed myself a bit. That's almost like saying, there is an electric fence. Let's see how close I can get to it without being electrocuted. Brother, you're going to get electrocuted. The whole point of submission to Christ and living in godliness is to get as far away from the electric fence as you possibly can. You've crucified the sinful nature. Live for Christ. All out for Christ. 100% for Jesus Christ and pursue godliness in him. It's not good to play with fire. And I want to give you a warning, young men. I have sat with men in their 60s who have thought the same as you concerning some sinful enjoyment in life and never ever overcome it. I've sat with men breaking down in their 60s over their lustful desires in pornography. And they thought that they would just, they would break it after they lost their youth. Well, then they got into their 30s and then into their 40s. Heed those warnings. How can a young man keep his way pure, asks the psalmist. By guarding it according to your word. The word that reveals the Savior Jesus Christ. Who by his spirit gives us grace and power. To be transformed into his likeness. So that in everything young men. In speech. In life. In love. In faith. In purity. You may live for Christ. You may offer a true and living testimony of who he is. By framing him. And gazing with with beauty, engaging the onlooker to see Christ. So the encouragement today is for you to act like men of faith who adorn the gospel and make it attractive, recognizing that your godliness brings about great gain for the gospel. Great gain. Your ungodliness, when pursued, brings about great loss. The call for us today, men, Make much of Jesus Christ. The life you live, the quality of your life, is the platform of your personal testimony. The kind of life that you live acts as a platform on which what you say is made believable. So if you live in a way 
that contradicts your word, you're going to be called a hypocrite. And people are not going to believe your message. People are not going to believe that, that, that the cross of Jesus Christ does what you say it does. That is, forgive people for their sins and change and transform their lives more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. They're not going to believe it. You see how this pursuit of godliness is so important for young men and for old men, for all, indeed. Something that we need to pursue together, brothers, whether that's in one-to-one discipline relationships or whether it's in furthering our men's ministry meetings together over the next year. We must be in prayer for one another that, it, that in, tr- in the truest sense, we may frame and adorn Christ, make him attractive, not that he needs to be beautified because he is infinitely beautiful and holy in himself, but that he has called us as a church to glorify him and frame his very magnificence so that you here today, brother, young, young man, old man, young woman, older woman, who don't know Jesus and who have not put their faith and trust in him, that you may know the fullness of life that is in Jesus Christ, the fullness of forgiveness that he offers by his death on the cross for your sins, where he took the punishment of your sin upon himself so that you might be freed and so that you might know new life in him now and indeed forever. Put your faith and trust in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have died on the cross for all of our imperfections. That you died on the cross for our sin. Thank you that even as we've been thinking through with the men today, what we are called to as godly men, that you, as we were singing even before our, our, the reading of your word today, that we have a great high priest, a heavenly advocate who constantly intercedes for us pleading his wounds before the father knowing that even for our failures they are paid for so we ask by your grace enable men in charlotte chapel to rise up and to pursue godliness above all the passionate lusts of the world so that we might truly know you truly live for you truly witness for you and truly bring glory to your name. This we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.